Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Welcome back, Bible Center family. It's so good to have you here. Those of you who are with us in person, those of you who are joining us online or on TV, welcome uh, to our services. If you're new, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be down front and be an honor to answer any questions that you have or to pray with you about any requests that may be on your heart. Let me invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I want to draw attention to the obvious, right? Uh, This is the Awkward Family Christmas series, and uh, the goal was for us all uh, to be wearing ugly sweaters, awkward Christmas sweaters throughout the series. Kudos to those who joined us in this service uh, with those ugly sweaters in the first service. Uh, We're really going to have to work on the first service, making sure that they have uh, Christmas sweaters uh, for next week. But I invite you to wear yours. I told Sarah, I said, honey, please go with me or please go for me to the store and get me three of the ugliest sweaters you can find for our Awkward Family Christmas series. That way I can wear them to church. And I was picturing something different than this. Uh, But she came home with this, and uh, like I told Riley yesterday, I'm going to wear this llama for your mama. Uh, But the thing about this particular uh, sweater is not just the front, but it also has a back to it. The sweater also has a back to it. And I didn't know that when I put it on. So I start walking down the hall, and they're just cackling, laughing. And uh, so anyway, this is the Awkward Family Christmas series. And, and what we want to do is just draw attention to the obvious, the elephant in the room. And that is that sometimes at Christmas, uh, our families can, can create some awkwardness, awkward situations. Perhaps you have some awkward family members. Here's a few pictures from some awkward family Christmases. Here's one. I would advise you not to make that your postcard. Here's another one. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but uh, they love Christmas. I love pets, right? How many pet lovers in here? We got any dog or cat lovers in here? I love pets, but I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not going to do that. Here's another picture. Um, it looks like he's about to strangle the goose. And then the last picture is uh, this one. That, if I was going to caption it with anything, it would be the word don't. Don't. Just don't. Don't do that. When I think about awkward families at Christmas, uh, my mind goes to, the, of course, this particular family uh, with Cousin Eddie. Maybe you, this is a tradition at your house to watch this movie, or, or you think of them when you think of awkward families. Uh, just one thing about this, this particular picture, and that is that every family here has a Cousin Eddie. You have a Cousin Eddie, whether you know it or not. Now, if you, I mean, I I could be wrong, but if you want to debate that, I would encourage you to think this with me. If you don't think your family has a Cousin Eddie, you know what that might mean. You very likely are Cousin Eddie, right? But throughout this series, maybe you are, um, maybe you're embarrassed by your family. Maybe you are a little bit hesitant as you approach Christmas to think, nobody really understands my situation, my family's unique, there's no family as broken as my family. What I want to do throughout this series is to put your mind at ease and to help you know that not only does the person sitting next to you understand, but ultimately Jesus understands. Jesus can relate, Jesus sympathizes, and Jesus cares. In the next few minutes, I'm going to give you a few short stories from Jesus' family about some of his awkward relatives, 
And I'm going to give you one thing to know and two things to do. One thing to know and two things to do. Feel free to follow along in the app if that will help. There's a lot of content there that you can study uh, throughout the week. Let me invite you to stand with me as I read from Matthew chapter 1. Let's stand out of respect for the Bible. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first page of the New Testament reads like a Hebrew phone book. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that most of us are tempted to skip, uh, but it's just as inspired as every other portion of Scripture. You see, the genealogies remind us that the Bible is God's Word and that it's rooted in history. Jesus was really born. It doesn't begin with once upon a time, but it begins with a very real family tree. The purpose of this genealogy is to prove that Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, as I read a few moments ago, we think about, uh, we think about these particular names that I just read. Maybe some names stood out to you, names like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, David. Of course, there were some Scrabble-winning names like Aminadab and Zerubbabel, but I want to highlight a few other stories that may not be as familiar to you in Jesus' family tree. And my goal for today is that you will look and say, I had no idea. I had no idea that that person was related to Jesus. Let's look at the first story. Judah and Tamar, the unlikely couple. Judah and Tamar, the unlikely couple. We see this in verse 3 of Matthew 1. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Judah and Tamar, the unlikely couple. 
Now, the story of Judah and Tamar would have read a a lot actually worse than what you might read at the supermarket tabloids. It would have made the tabloids look like a Dr. Seuss book. You can read the story for yourself in Genesis 38. There was a beautiful Syrian woman by the name of Tamar who married into a wealthy Jewish family, Abraham's family. Even though her husband was Abraham's great-great-grandson, he was a wicked, wicked man, and God killed him. Now, Tamar was grieved for her husband. She missed her husband, but more than that, she wanted children, and she hadn't yet had children, and the biological clock was ticking. In that particular culture, it was important for women to have a big family. It brought them honor. It brought them great respect. And so she wanted children. Her father was Judah. Maybe you've heard this phrase, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the Judah we're talking about. Her father-in-law was Judah. Now, Judah had just recently lost his wife, and evidently she knew that Judah had an Achilles heel, that Judah had a particular temptation. And so she knew that Judah was going to take a trip to a nearby town, and she went ahead of Judah, according to Genesis 38, and she waited at the city gates for him dressed as a prostitute. Evidently, she was veiled. He didn't know it was her And she knew he would take the bait, and sure enough, he did. When it came time for Judah to pay uh, for, to pay her, not knowing who her was, who she was, he didn't have enough money, and she purposely, evidently, jacked the price up. And so he didn't have enough money, and so he gave her what sounds like his ring. It says it was a piece of jewelry with a family crest on it. Maybe it was a ring, maybe it was the necklace, but for this sake of the story, we'll call it the ring. And so he gives her the ring, and she says, that'll be enough payment, and they go about their ways. Well, a couple months later, Judah hears that his daughter-in-law, his widowed daughter-in-law, is pregnant. And Judah knows this is going to bring great disgrace on the family. And so Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, put yourself in Tamar's shoes for a moment, right? Like, how unjust is that? Here he is trying to save face, making it seem as though that she's the wicked one in the family. So what do you think Tamar does next? She just took a page right out of a Jerry Springer show, right? And she shows the ring, right? You're the baby daddy. And of course, Jude Tamar is a smart girl. Not only did she not want to die, but thankfully Judah canceled the death sentence And their two boys, their twin boys, would be part of Jesus' family tree. That means that Judah was Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather, and Tamar was one of Jesus' great-great-great-grandmothers. There's another story, the story of Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute. Notice Matthew 1 and verse 5. We read a moment ago, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab is in Jesus' family tree. Now think back to your high school days. Think back to your college days. Maybe there was a, a particular person that had a reputation. Maybe it was you who had uh, the reputation. But when we, th- when we ask Old Testament scholars who had the reputation in the Old Testament for low morals, Uh, for having low standards, it would have been Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. 
You can read the story in Joshua's chapter 1 and 2 about Rahab. What, in the setting, the people of Israel are coming into the promised land and they're conquering the first big city, the city of Jericho. Now, the way the true story is related to us, Joshua sent two spies on ahead across the Jordan River to go spy out to find out the vulnerabilities in the city of Jericho. Now, there would have been a lot of people coming and going from the city of Jericho. It was huge. And so just picture as these two spies march into town and, and they, get, they get a hotel room just like any other traveler would get a hotel room. But what they don't know is that the hotel belongs to Rahab. And Rahab is running a side business out of her, her hotel. Well, somehow or another, the Bible doesn't tell us how, but somehow or another they, they figured out that these two men did not belong in the city of Jericho, that they were most likely Hebrew spies. Maybe it was the complexion of their skin, it's hard to say. And so the king sent his soldiers to Rahab's hotel to, to find these two men that were probably spies, and he was right. Well, they ransacked the hotel, never found the two spies because Rahab hid them on the roof. And picture with me, after the soldiers leave, Rahab goes up on the roof and she tells these two spies, she says, look, this is how you get out of town alive. And when you bring the army back, this is how you are to ransack the the city of Jericho. But there's one condition, your life for my life. Your life for my life. In other words, you live... I live. I won't tell the king that you're coming back with your army if you promise to let my family and I live when you conquer the city of Jericho. Well, you can read how the story ends in Joshua chapter 6. Rahab kept her word and the two Hebrew spies kept their word. Rahab and her family were spared. Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2 describe Rahab as going on to be one of the most righteous, one of the most faithful women in all of Israel. But how ironic is it that Rahab the prostitute is in Jesus' family tree? Talk about an awkward family tree. Judah, Tamar, Rahab. Let's look at another one. Ruth the widow. Ruth the widow. We see her in Matthew 1 in verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. I love the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is a love story. I I look forward to going through the book of Ruth, hopefully the next couple years. It's only four chapters, four beautiful chapters that show the love and faithfulness of God and the love and faithfulness of two people to one another. It's a beautiful story. Uh, But we pick up the book of Ruth or the story of Ruth in chapter 1. Ruth comes from an unbelieving pagan family. It doesn't tell us when Ruth became a Christian or became a follower of God, the one true God, but we we learn that at some point in time, at least after her first husband's death, she becomes a follower of the one true God. Now, Ruth doesn't come from, as far as we know, a life of scandal. She doesn't have the, the steamy story that Rahab has or that Tamar has. But Ruth's family did. According to Genesis 19, Ruth's family, the Moabite people, were some of the most wicked people who've ever lived in the Middle East. They started, according to Genesis 19, out of incest. And that just that debauchery continued line after line after line. Even though Ruth wasn't embroiled in any kind of scandal, we could say that she came from the wrong side of the tracks. 
from a disreputable situation. And so I wonder today if any of you, any of us, can relate to Ruth. Maybe you are like Ruth. Maybe perhaps you don't come from a disreputable situation, but maybe your family does. If you think about it in our community, if you've lived in this community for any length of time, this is a small community. It is really hard to hide one another's skeletons in this community. Right? We, you live here long enough, you're going to know just about everything about everybody. One of our church members recently told me that my grandpa, all my family's from here, my grandpa on my dad's side's from Clay County, grandpa from my mom's side's from uh, Lincoln County, Allen Creek, and uh, one of the men of our church told me that my grandpa died owing him $3,000. I was like, don't look at me, pal, I'm not good for it, right? I'm not good for it. Right? If you live here, you, you know the skeletons in, in one another's closet. But I love Ruth's heart for God and where she found her identity. Her identity wasn't in her family. Her identity was in her father, her heavenly father. She told her mother-in-law this. She said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And God chose to put Ruth in Jesus' family tree. There's a fourth story. Another person to look at, and that is Bathsheba, the mistress. Bathsheba, the mistress, also in Jesus' family tree. Matthew 1.6. King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba, the mistress. Even though Matthew doesn't call her by name, he's talking about Bathsheba. You're probably familiar with the story if you've been in church for any length of time. King David was the greatest king Israel has ever known, other than Jesus. He did so much good. He was a man after God's own heart. In your Bible, right towards the middle is the book of Psalms. Most of the Psalms were written by King David. But unfortunately, King David also had an Achilles heel. Evidently, it was his lust. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read the true story where David looked out over the, the rooftops of all those who lived below his palace and he saw a woman bathing on the roof. Her name was Bathsheba. Using his authority in an unethical and ungodly way, he had his servants bring Bathsheba to the palace so he could sleep with her while her husband was off fighting in battle. I'm not saying that Bathsheba was completely innocent, but think with me. David leveraged his power to take advantage of someone who had no power. Had she refused a direct summons from the king, he, she could have been put in prison or worse. From this one-night stand, a baby was eventually born. Bathsheba, she sends word to King David a month or two later, and she says, I'm, I'm pregnant. Well, David's scrambling, trying to find a way if there's still time for him to hide what has happened. David calls to his generals, and he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, brought from the battlefield so he could spend some time at home. Well, well Uriah wouldn't go home. All of his men were out fighting, and some were dying on the battlefield. And he told King David, how can I come home and be with my wife while my men are dying? And so David sent Uriah back to the battlefield, but told his generals, put him on the front lines and withdraw the troops as soon as the enemy advances. That's exactly what happened. So Uriah died. One of Bathsheba's children was Solomon. We know him as King Solomon. 
the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus. I, I didn't know this until this week, but according to Jewish tradition, Bathsheba did not live an easy life, even though Solomon was her son. Tradition says that Israel, primarily the women of Israel, despised her until the day of her death. Imagine the sorrow that she bore until she died. But yet, God chose to put Bathsheba in Jesus' family tree. It's kind of mind-boggling, really. There's one more person that I want to draw your attention to in Jesus' family tree, and that is Manasseh, the evil king. Manasseh, the evil king. We see him in verse 10. We could talk for hours about all these different characters that we read about, but we'll just look at this last one. That's Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, or Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Matthew 1.10. Manasseh, the evil king, was in Jesus' family tree. Now, maybe you've heard the phrase, saving the best for last. Well, this morning, I'm saving the worst for last. Manasseh was the most wicked king who ever lived in all of Israel, in all of Judah. Who was Manasseh? You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 21. All of this is in your notes. He was the 14th king of Judah and still known as the most wicked king in Israel's history. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 15.4 that he indeed did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He built altars to idols and to the stars. He practiced child sacrifice, the most horrible practice of any of the pagan nations. He consulted psychics and witches and wizards. He removed all restraint to sexual sin, making debauchery commonplace in the culture. Thankfully, Manasseh, just before he died, did turn to God. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Let's read a few verses there. If you want to flip over or or turn over to 2 Chronicles 33, the words will also be on the screen. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Manasseh became one of Jesus' great, great, great grandfathers. Now, why would we look at these characters? Or a better question would be, why did God include them in Jesus's family tree? We know that the family tree, the genealogy proved that Jesus lived. He was a historical man, the God-man who was indeed born. But why these people in the family tree? I'm convinced it all comes down to this. Here's the big idea. Here's what I want you to know. There's no family on earth 
too broken for the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no family on earth too broken for the grace of Jesus Christ. When the original readers would have read and heard Matthew chapter 1 read aloud in their church, those who had Jewish background would have gasped. Those people are related to Jesus? And this proves for us that there is no family on earth too broken for the grace of Jesus Christ. With Jesus, no family is a lost cause. Jesus understands broken families, and Jesus delights in saving broken families. No one understands families like Jesus, and no one can save broken families like Jesus. There's no family on earth too broken for the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about Matthew 1, our minds will go to a genealogy. We read that genealogy a few moments ago. But Matthew chapter 1 is not primarily about a genealogy. It's primarily about grace. Matthew chapter 1 is primarily about the grace of God. You see, what is the grace of God? Well, some define grace this way. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's kind of a, a cliche way to define grace. It's kind of one that we've used in our Sunday school classes for, for generations. Unfortunately, that's a man-made definition. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, that acronym, although I'm okay with it, but I just want to propose this morning that it's more than that. Grace is more than God's riches. It's more than God's forgiveness. Grace is more than just getting to be saved, being able to be saved from hell. Grace is access to God himself. Grace is God's self-giving. In Ephesians 2 and 3, you can read that this week on your own, Paul defines grace as access to God. In other words, the biggest benefit of your salvation isn't that you have your sins forgiven. The biggest benefit of your salvation is that you get Jesus. Jesus is the biggest benefit of your salvation. And that's the beauty of Matthew 1. In Matthew 1, you've got all these messy, broken people, and God, instead of running a million miles away, God breaks through, pierces the darkness, and God gives himself to a really messed up family. God is in the business of turning messes into miracles, and he does that by giving himself. In Genesis, we read about Abraham and, or Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. The rest of the Bible is the story of God restoring his presence, access to himself. This is why God meets with Israel in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This is why Jesus shows up in human history on the first Christmas morning. This is why the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. And this is why the Spirit comes permanently to indwell us who put our faith in Jesus. Because grace is access to God himself. There's no family on earth too broken for the grace of Jesus Think with me. Jesus came from a long line of outsiders, outcasts, scoundrels, and sinners. But when he entered the world, he entered into the messiness of the human family. He entered into a messy family tree, and to save it, he died 
on a tree. There's no family on earth too broken for the grace of Jesus Christ. Now there's two verses I want us to read before we're done. And that's Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. We just talked about the genealogy. In the same context, right after Matthew has given us this, this genealogy, notice what he writes in context. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Joseph, in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. There's two things I want to encourage you to do before we're done. Number one, ask Jesus to save you from your sin. Ask Jesus to save you from your sin. As I've spoken this morning about some of these different characters, maybe there's some of your own sin has come up in your mind, in your heart. Maybe you've seen yourself in some of these characters, or maybe it's some sin that I didn't even mention. Maybe there's a sense of shame that is defining your sense of self. And what I want to do today is encourage you with this. If God can save Judah and Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba and Manasseh, what sin have you committed that God can't forgive? I mean, really? What sin have you done that God can forgive? Martin Luther, 500 some years ago, Martin Luther wrote this about Matthew 1. I love his commentary on this. He says, it is as though God intended this genealogy to say, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Yesterday, I enjoyed the second Saturday of the year, my second time this year cutting firewood. My dad gave me a chainsaw for Christmas, kind of an early Christmas present. I did not know that cutting wood and splitting firewood was missing from my life until about two weeks ago. Oh, it's amazing. I love it. You can just chop things and cut things, and you just feel so good when you're done. And, but, but I'm learning, right? I got a lot to learn. I want to be safe, right? You want me to be safe? Um, several of you commented on, the, on Facebook, be careful, it's very dangerous, I, I get that. Um, but I'm learning like how to do it. So like when you split in firewood, you might think you're going to split it right down the middle, but if there's a bunch of knots in the wood, it's not going to split quite, quite the way you want it to split, right? especially when you're trying to show off for your wife or your kids, hey, watch this, and it doesn't go the way you want it to go. When you think about all those knots in the tree, what we just read about essentially was all the knots in Jesus' family tree, right? We read about all those kind of ugly places in Jesus' family tree, but here's what I want to ask you to do today. Instead of seeing that crazy uncle or that crazy aunt or that brother or sister as the, as the knot in your family tree, what if you saw yourself as the knot in your family tree? That's what Paul did. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not of whom my uncle is chief, but of whom I am chief. 
Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and you feel the weight of sin on your back and the shame around your heart, my prayer is that you will experience the good news of God's grace. You today can call on the name of the Lord and experience his salvation, and you can know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Just two or three weeks ago, after one of the services, there was a lady, dear lady, who met with me at, right outside the doors, and she said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Young professional woman, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Asked her if she understood the gospel. She understood the gospel. She's like, what must I do? She didn't say it in these words, but what must I do to be saved? What do I got to do? I believe that. What do I got to do? She was probably already born again before we even prayed. But we bowed our heads out here and she asked Jesus to be her Lord and Savior, to forgive her sin and change her life. That hope can be yours today. That hope can be yours this Christmas. Ask Jesus to save you from your sins. In closing, I want to encourage you to do this, Christian. Ask Jesus to save your family members from their sins. Ask Jesus to save your family members from their sins. Do you have any family members you're burdened for this Christmas? Do you have any relatives that don't know Jesus as their Savior? Any relatives you've talked about Jesus before, you've invited them to church, but it just doesn't seem like they really have any desire to know God? I want to encourage you to pray that God will save them from their sins. Salvation is of the Lord, the Bible says. You know, just two stories. One is of my uncle. A few years ago, my uncle was not yet a follower of Jesus. He was um, a good man, great uncle, favorite uncle to have around at Christmas time when you're opening presents, kind man, but not a follower of Jesus. We prayed for years for my uncle Dave to be saved. But you know, after a while, I got to admit, you know, you ever pray for somebody so long, you're like, is God even here, right? Is God, I mean, is God even here? Is God ever going to open their heart to faith? We prayed and prayed and prayed for Uncle Dave, and I got a call from my mom. A lot of my cousins live and go to church down in Taze Valley, and they were all sitting on the same row at a church down in the valley, and, and uh, one Sunday morning, they look up, and there's my Uncle Dave standing there on a Sunday morning asking if there's room in their seat, in their row. So, of course, they made room in the row, and they went through the whole service. And after church, they were like, hey, they tried to ask, like, why are you here? You know, like, why are you in church? Um, you know, he had darkened the doors of a church in decades. And this is what he said. He said that that Sunday morning, he was getting in the shower like he does every other morning, and he said all that gospel, all that good news he had heard from his godly mother, he'd heard for years from his relatives, he said it all just kind of clicked. And there in the shower, he said, I believe. I believe the gospel. And he came to church because he didn't know what was next. Like, what's next? Once you believe the gospel, what's next? And he, he came to church and shared his story. And these several years later, he's still on fire for Jesus. And I'm convinced it was because his godly mother, before she went to heaven, and I'm convinced it was because of his sisters and relatives praying for him, God opened his heart to faith. 
after the first service, uh, uh, one of our men told me the story about a man named Ralph. He said Ralph lived uh, less than a mile from here, and Ralph was in the Korean War. He was part of the Frozen Chosen. Maybe you've heard of the Frozen Chosen of the Korean War. And, and, and Ralph was a hard man, but his wife was a sweet, godly lady. She went to church every week, prayed for Ralph to be saved. Ralph would, wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And he told me after the first service, he said, Matt, before Ralph died, one morning he was, she was getting ready for church and Ralph walked up to his wife all dressed up and she said, what are you, where are you going? He said, I'm going to church. She said, okay. They went to church. After the service, he came down, asked the pastor, what do I need to do to be saved? And Ralph trusted Jesus as a savior. And Delbert told me that people who live all around this area remember Ralph hard man who was never the same after he found Jesus. Oh, don't quit praying for that loved one. Don't quit giving them the gospel. Don't quit believing. You see, if God can include Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Judah and Bathsheba and Manasseh in his family tree, certainly God can save your relative. Keep on praying. You say, Matt, why should I do that? It all comes back to our big idea. There's no family on earth too broken for the grace of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. 